Welcome to Fire Headlines, where we discuss the hottest fire news to hit within the last two weeks. I'm your host, Inanna Hankey, and I'm joined today by the panel, Chief Bob Horton and Chief Jeff Buchanan. And we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Kate Capolo back. If you've listened to previous episodes with us, you will have heard her speak before. She is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to research, technology, and integrating those into the fire service to help us respond better to emergencies. Today, we are continuing our discussion of AI in the fire service, and the topic today relates to how analytics paired with satellite data can help to fight fire. AI shows promise as a tool to help first responders understand the development of active blazes, but predicting fire behavior still has a long way to go. The fires in California in 2020 are just one example of times when past fire behavior was not necessarily an accurate basis for predicting how a fire would develop due to different conditions caused by climate change. One equation which is intended to help fire bosses understand fire behavior is the Farsight system. However, its creator, Mark Finney, said that the equation has an awful lot of assumptions in it. We're getting there. Nature is a lot more complicated. There are still a number of mysteries on fire behavior, and we don't necessarily have a roadmap to follow that tells us whether or not this is good enough for on-the-ground use. Bob, I'm wondering, in your time in the fire service, did you get a chance to use anything like the Farsight system? Did you happen to use this? What tools are you familiar with that use these kinds of processes? You bet. Thanks for the tee up there. We actually grew up in the fire service generation, sadly, in the early 2000s to to just only a short few years ago, where we were largely not using any type of information or intelligence to help inform our decisions. We were we were notified by the 911 center that there was a place that we needed to be at. And we basically had mapping coordinates. So this was before GPS, not even all that long ago. We had mapping coordinates and that was about it. And we'd figure it out when we got there. And if you saw a column of smoke, Along the way, you had a decent indication that there was a fire. Uh, We have advanced so far, so fast, and let's call it the last decade. Kate will speak to even just some of the work we're doing with the Western Fire Chiefs Association to help advance this utilization of advanced analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, particularly in the wildfire space. There's just a myriad of data that could be available to us. There's still a bunch of data that should be available to us. And there are amazing partners, both in the private space, private industry, government, philanthropy, who are very invested in improving the technology that firefighters have to inform decision-making. Some projects that Kate and I are working on, our goal is to get the best information at the appropriate time that decision-makers who are, let's say, incident commanders of of a wildfire have everything they could possibly need to know to help inform their decision at the time uh, that they need to have it. That sounds really intuitive and to a lot of folks with without fire background may listen, may hear that and say, well, this just seems common sense. Like, how do we not have that available today? We, we largely don't. And because the fire service and it's a couple hundred years of tradition has really been based on this intuition based decision making, these, these the feelings that our officers have. And I don't want to dismiss that experience. Uh, is a valuable in decision-making, which is why none of the real work that we're doing is in place of of effective decision-making on the fire ground. It's all there as a tool to be informative and useful. 
but there's a tremendous amount of advancements. And let me let me just stop and pitch it over here to Kate and let her talk a little bit. I mean, this is what her expertise is, is the intersection between this kind of technology and the hu- and human factors. And Kate, would you just start in just explaining what, to folks your, your background in human factors and then how that plays into this conversation? So when I explain human factors in a short, small way of thinking about it is just kind of understanding the science of people in their workplace. Um, So human factors and ergonomics, it's really understanding what are the limitations of human cognition and then how can we use tools? So tools like computers or emerging technologies to better support that process. And so my background, I came as a civilian scientist with the Navy. So I used to work with like F-18 Top Gun pilots and I studied their decision-making processes. Um, And a lot of what I do is eliciting expertise from experts. So when we think about, you know, when I'm talking with Fireground Incident Command, a lot of what I do is try to pull out, okay, for you, this is intuitive. You've done this so many times before, but what but what are those critical points of decision making? And that's that's really what a lot of our work is focusing on right now at the Applied Sciences Center is what are those critical decision points in the first 24 hours of a WUI incident? So we have these complex incidents and we're trying to better understand how can we distill these points down so that we can we can do a better analysis of where are things happening and what are those critical points where you need to make decisions. And part of that is because we're seeing, you know, I'm sure Bob can speak to this and and also um, Chief Buchanan as well. But I think when we when we're looking at all of the the things that are happening in the WUI space right now, we're seeing unprecedented changes, right? We're seeing incidents that you have never seen before in your 30 year career. Um, and so I think what what we really want to do is is take a crack at understanding where are those decisions so that we can help support. We can use technology to help support because adding more sensors, adding more data isn't going to be effective because humans can only take in so much information at a time. And it goes back to this really basic principle in ergonomics and human factors called Fitts law. And really what this what this kind of focuses on um, in a nutshell is what are humans good at and what are machines good at? And then how how do we distinguish where we should use a machine to help support decision making versus actually making a decision for the incident commander? So I want to caveat this by saying I know a lot of people think AI is like replacing humans and there's all these myths, you know, Terminator, Skynet, <laughs> all those like, you know, kinds of conversations about how AI can replace humans. And I really want to caveat that by saying the research that we're doing is not doing that. We're not looking to use AI to replace a human by any means. We're looking to use AI and machine learning and data science to support incident command at doing what they do best. This type of project seems inherently multidisciplinary. And I, I guess you're right. We do think of AI as, you know, replacing humans and that all of this information is to some extent already being gathered. But what do you actually do with it and how do you integrate it into I have never been on a fire ground, but I imagine it can be kind of a chaotic environment where there's a lot going on. There's a lot of decisions being made. How do you take so many different kinds of information and actually make it useful to the people who are responding? So I think that that is good to remember that it is not necessarily simple. Even if the data exists, there is certainly a human element in making it actually useful to the people who need it the most. Jeff, what are your thoughts? You've been quiet so far. Yeah, I appreciate that, Anana. So so what I love about this article and the points that Kate made is the focus on decision making. 
focus on decision-making when and why. And my perspective is I'm, I'm a model guy. And what I mean by a model guy is certainly not the way I look. I'm talking about a model that you use for whatever it is, because I believe if you can't express exactly what you did, you're getting lucky. And you have to have a model in order to repeat it. And you have to have a model in order to practice it and gain mastery of whatever it is that you're, you're talking about. Decision-making, you need a model. And what I love about what Kate has uncovered and what we're trying to get to in the wildfire space is what is that timing of decision? You know, I have zero experience in the wildfire arena or next to zero. And all of my experience is in the, is in the urban setting. But yet I am sure that there are incident commanders that could struggle with what was it at this point in time that made me do this? Was it that, you know, a lot of things that we do in the urban interfaces, we, we read smoke, the amount of smoke, the speed of smoke, the color of smoke can be excellent indicators, a super fast moving amount of smoke in a particular corner that's dark means that's more than likely the origin of the fire. That's where the fire's at. And that could draw, it should draw an incident commander to make a certain decision. Yet it may just happen instinctively. And that goes back to what Kate talked so eloquently about earlier is this intersection between intuition and the limitations of the cognitive space of a person while on a scene. They may actually be looking at that smoke and not realizing it and making a decision. But yet what this technology is doing and researchers like Kate and Bob and others and the Western Fire Chiefs Association Applied Science Centers is having incident commanders slow down and think very, very acutely about what it is that they're doing so we can come up with a model, AI can help, machine learning can help and say, oh, you know what? You did it at four minutes into the fire because the smoke speed changed and the smoke color changed and you might not have put that together. Transfer that into the wildfire space, it could be maybe the speed of the progress of the fire change. So that's what caused an instant commander to make a, a new decision. And capturing all that for a recipe of sorts and being able to dole it back out to the masses so they can see how the decisions are being made is going to advance the fire service. It's going to teach another generation. It's going to make us better. So I really, really love the discussion. And, and I would just add, you know, this type of technology has limitations and those that utilize these models or this type of, of intelligence for to inform decision-making ought to also understand the limitations of the information we have. We're continuing part of what machine learning and Kate can correct me if I'm wrong is new information continues to feed the model and it becomes smarter and smarter along the way. Uh, but there are to the article's point that you brought up on the onset and Anna, there are assumptions that are made along the way that, we want better information. We don't have to make assumptions about things that we could possibly know objectively to feed the model. So the uh, I'll say I'll say it differently. You know, a lot of folks will say, well, because the weather person's always wrong. I used to say that until I had a little bit better understanding of of the system. So the weather person is always wrong. And they say that because your weather person who's using models, they're they're modeling what they predict the weather is more likely than not going to be. 
and they may come and say, this is an 80% chance of rain. And they're not making the decision at that point. They're not telling you to bring an umbrella or not. Or maybe sometimes they do get a little, a little umbrella graphic. Uh, there's really no, no cost in just bringing the umbrella with you. But that's beside the point. The point is, is they're telling you there's 80% likelihood of rain. Now, what that, t- what that means is when these conditions uh, uh, show themselves, when these variables are in the, the space that they are in the model, that eight times out of 10, it's going to rain. And two times out of 10, it won't. So it's more likely than not going to rain. They give us this probability at 80%. And now we have to make a decision on how we want to react to that. When you go outside and it doesn't rain, our intuition, because we are we, we have a binary bias, we'd like to see things through uh, on one hand or the other hand. Like it's, it's a yes or no, it's a right or wrong. So when we hear 80%, our mind intuits that it's going to rain. And when we go outside and it's not raining, we assume the weather person was wrong. So there are limitations to our understanding about even weather models and how the weather uh, uh, impacts an entire community. I mean, it's hard to predict what the weather would be for an entire community like Southern Nevada or Oregon or wherever you know folks are. So they give their best guess based on the information they have. That's what we're learning about and understanding in this space, how, because we're getting new sensor technology, we're getting new satellite technology, we're getting tremendous advancements from folks like NASA, who's funding our project that Kate was just talking about. They're very interested in improving the technology, the sensor capabilities and that data and that information, very smart people uh, are trying to understand how do we improve the data feed to make the the models smarter so the information's useful. And part of what we do and to what Kate was just talking about from a human factors perspective is we bring in the practice, the practitioners and say, how is this useful? Because we all like in previous conversations is you could put up the best technology in the world. If the fire service resists it and doesn't want to use it, it's, it's, it's basically been a, been a waste. So, uh, you know, under, under Kate's leadership, the idea really now is bring the fire decision makers in as early in the process as this technology is being imagine uh, so that it's one, the firefighters understand it better. And that's part of what we are are also doing through the Western fire chiefs is getting that information out. So firefighters understand what does it mean? What are its limitations and how is it useful? And then soliciting their feedback and sharing that with the partners who are advancing this technology. No, that was beautiful. That was a great explanation. I think, I think you captured it perfectly. So to your point, and I just wanted to circle back on this before I forget, because I know I will. Um, so when we think about, you know, how are we going to make technology useful for the fire service? This question comes up all the time, right? As if firefighters are like the only people that never adopt any new technology. And in my experience, that's not true. I get to work with you all. You all are so cool. The Western does incredible work with technology. We are on the cutting edge. You know, there there are there's this like misconception that the fire service service is like grounded in tradition and has no desire to expand. And I, I think I get kind of annoyed with that kind of mindset. But anyway, um, kind of furthering that along, when we bring in these experts to explain this decision making process, part of it is we want to understand, you know, what's useful to you on the incident scene. But also when we're thinking about the art of the possible, and this kind of speaks to some of the psychology that we've talked about in previous episodes, there's this idea of the IKEA effect, essentially. And it's the idea that you like things more when you contribute to building them, which is kind of intuitive, right? Like if you are part of the process and you are included in the process of building, something it feels more tangible and relatable to you than than something that wasn't built for you and just kind of retrofitted and given to you and so i think 
I think when we touch on these points of adoption and it all kind of intersects, the, the reality of this is you have almost no time to make decisions and you're making these decisions based on expertise, based on, you know, what you've learned in the past. And I think technology has the ability to kind of change that paradigm and, and turn it on its head. But we really have to be careful that we are including those voices in the process and we're including diverse voices. We're not, as part of this project, we're not just going to one group of stakeholders and saying, what are your opinions? We are we are pulling a bunch of different people. We're including different voices in the process because that's really important for this. We're not just going to focus on one role or one way of looking at things because to that point, when we make assumptions, we're potentially building a model that's not useful. Um, and so that's that's really where we're we're going with that. Absolutely. I think buy-in is essential for pretty much any kind of organization. The people have to believe in what they're using. And it just makes so much sense to have them involved as well, because I'm sure that they're thinking of and seeing things that a researcher might not see themselves just because, you know, we're not used to that kind of environment if you're coming in from the science side. Kate, I'm wondering, this maybe is just taking a slightly different direction, but I, I guess I'm just stuck on trying to comprehend how complicated this whole modeling thing could potentially be with the weather and the historical data and the ecology and just everything that goes into what could create the conditions for fire to be dangerous. Just give me a sense of how you as, you know, someone from a science background approach a really complex system and begin to break it down and understand it. Like, what does that process look like from the science side? That's an excellent question. So I'm working with a bunch of different collaborators. So this isn't just me at the center. So I, I will say there are people way smarter than me in different disciplines that we are working with who can who can speak to, you know, their system. But really what we're building is a system of systems. And so at the core of that, we've had, we've got multiple smaller systems that that help support these decision making processes. But what the goal of this project is ultimately looking at is where are decisions or systems currently lacking support. So we're we're kind of taking the spin of okay, well we've got, you know, pieces from weather, pieces from ecology, pieces from here. All of that kind of, you know, plays out how it's going to play out, but we're scoping it down to the first 24 hours. So that that's making it a little bit easier. I'm not saying it's going to make it <laughs> easy at all by any means. But that does scope the problem to, you know, we're we're responding. Um, but to your point, I mean, there's different there's different systems that we're using at different points in the process too, right? So before an incident, I'm a nerd about pre-incident planning. I could talk about that for hours, but th your thought process before an incident is sometimes different than when you're responding and it's definitely different post. Um, so all of those things are kind of being factored into the equation, so to speak. We're not ignoring those parts. So I just want to make that clear. Although we've scoped the project, we have to for, you know, science reasons. You can't look at everything all at once or you wouldn't be able to break anything down. Um, but I think I think the thing to keep in mind here is that we're relying on the groups of people and we're identifying critical roles so that we can start to think through the decision making process. And then that's kind of when we take that interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary approach and integrate those different pieces and those different experts who can contribute to making the model more useful. So we, we're taking an initial kind of um, approach in, in facilitating setting up the model, but we're definitely going to have to iterate to your point because it is a complex system. And and being able to to model this does take a lot of data collection, but it also involves gathering what do we currently know? What is training doctrine? What do the field operating guides say? And then we're comparing, okay, 
if we have doctrine and training, is it different in the field? What are what are you doing differently in the field that doesn't match doctrine so that we can get a better idea of how how that system, so to speak, that that subsystem is operating? That makes a lot of sense. Well, it was a pleasure having you join us again, Kate. Thank you very much for your amazing knowledge of this topic. Uh, it makes my head spin a little bit, but I appreciate the way that you broke it down for me, at least. Uh, I know you can find Kate on LinkedIn and remind our listeners where, where else they can find you if they're curious to hear more. Sure. So I, I have some of my published research available on Google Scholar or ResearchGate. Perfect. And thank you, of course, for our listeners tuning in today. If you have a question for the panel, please reach out to us at fireheadlines at wfca.com and let us know what's on your mind. We'll see you back here next week for more Fire Headlines. Fire Headlines.